Hi, I'm Margaret France from Oakland, California. The Sound of Young America is an independent production supported by listeners like you and me. If you'd like to donate to support the show, visit MaximumFun.org and click on Donate. Live on tape from my house in Los Angeles, I'm Jesse Thorne, and this is The Sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org. Radio sweetheart, on the airways, it's the sound of It's the sound of young America. I'm Jesse Thorne, America's radio sweetheart. My guest on the program is Benjamin Nugent. His new book is called American Nerd. It's part sociology, part history, and part personal narrative about uh, Ben's own childhood as a nerd. Ben, welcome to the sound of young America. Hey, thanks for having me. Um, It's a pleasure. I really like the book. Um, Thanks. I think we should start. I, you do a very interesting job of uh, defining what nerdiness is. I feel like everyone has some idea of what the word means. It must have been a challenge to kind of think of what what the actual definition is. It did take a while, and my point of departure was the Wikipedia definition and figuring out why that sounded correct but actually didn't match up with what I decided most people's intuitive sense of what a nerd was, um, gave me a way into finding a definition. What, what was the Wikipedia definition? The Wikipedia definition, and this is last year, who knows what the Wikipedia definition is now. I can probably measure the success of my book by how it's changed the Wikipedia definition. <laughs> but uh, the Wikipedia definition was basically that a nerd was a socially awkward intellectual. And... There, I had a few intuitive objections to that right off the bat. One was that uh, it seems like if you're an obsessive Halo 4 player or, or a D&D player 24-7, maybe you're not necessarily an intellectual. Right. And and then maybe the, the, the other side of that coin is there, there are ways to be a socially awkward intellectual that aren't really nerdy. Um, and so the definition that I like think... Like owning a dusty bookshop? Yeah, owning a dusty bookshop or, or being an arts professor who whose frame of reference is too arty for people or something. Or somebody I, I think who's one of like a belligerent drunk art professor. Yeah, or you know, being one of those really cool drunken writers who's read every <laughs> book or something. Like there, there are lots of ways to not be a nerd and that you could still be socially awkward and intellectual. And so, the uh, definition I came up with, actually, was that nerds are people who are basically really good with and like um, systems and rules and rational systematizing ways of thinking. And this makes them remind people, sometimes not unpleasantly, of machines. Uh, they're good at thinking in a lot of the same ways machines are good at thinking. And they're bad at thinking in a lot of the same ways machines are bad at thinking. They're not as intuitive in terms of how to be socially graceful. They don't necessarily have a sense of what other people are feeling and want from them. They have trouble with empathy sometimes. One of the things that you write about in the book is that that definition sort of places the nerd uh, somewhere uh, somewhere uh, a little bit down the line of the autism spectrum and, in fact, kind of dovetails partly with the definition of Asperger's syndrome. 
Right. Well, Asperger's syndrome is just a bunch of traits that everybody has in a more extreme form. And so, and then more extreme than that is autism. And so, you know, you can be someone who is nerdy and, and not have Asperger's syndrome, which is a neurologically hardwired extreme version of those traits that I just described. Um, you could say, be obsessive about activities that are all about rules and systems because you, for external reasons, you're, um, socially isolated and that's all you know, for example, and then change later or something. Whereas Asperger's syndrome refers to a neurological condition. Let's let's talk a little bit about the uh the the, his, the history that you write about. Where does the what were some of the early examples that you found of these characteristics being represented in uh in in literature and, and in other areas? Well, I think the very earliest nerds I could find in literature were Victor Frankenstein. Uh, you know, and, and Frankenstein by Mary Shelley came out 1813. Uh, classic romantic novel in that it's all about why this guy shouldn't lock himself up in a tower and make a human being out of corpse parts just because it's kind of interesting to do that. And Victor Frankenstein's whole thing is I want to penetrate the secrets of nature. Uh, he has this drive to penetrate Science and it seems like this very phallic, or I guess philogocentric would be the academic <laughs> way of, of saying this uh, drive. And he cuts himself off from his family, and he's so unempathetic to this creature he creates that as soon as it wakes up and he sees how ugly it is, he's like, "Oh man, I'm out of here. I made it. Now I'm gone," and abandons the thing essentially, and it's left to wander the world learning English on its own, et cetera. And so it's that combination of technical expertise and lack of empathy. It's clear in, in reading Frankenstein that Mary Shelley's not crazy about Dr. Frankenstein. Right. Um, and you write a lot about how, you write a lot about romanticism as a sort of antithesis, an early antithesis to nerdiness. That's right. Um, romanticism was a reaction against a lot of Enlightenment thinking, that purported to be completely rational. And a big part of the transition between the Enlightenment age and the Romantic age was in the Enlightenment age, there aren't really thinking machines in any sense. Um, there are tools, but there aren't, say, these factory machines that set their own rhythm. Once you're in the Romantic era, early 19th century, say, um, you have these factories that um, basically dictate the motions of the workers in them. And so what becomes most quintessentially human uh, changes. In the Enlightenment era, what's quintessentially human is to think. And in the Romantic era, what is most quintessentially human is spontaneously to feel, to love, because machines can now do that kind of thinking to some extent. It, they didn't have computers then, obviously, which were an extreme example. But. Essentially, those systems and uh, systems of rationality move from being a, a human trait to being a somewhat threatening machine-like trait. Right. Well, basically, in the Enlightenment era, we defined ourselves in contrast to animals. We said, they can't think and we can. That's what makes us human. Once you've got something else that thinks, it can't be it can't be what's human anymore. Even if you don't think it's threatening necessarily, we know that it's not our most essential characteristic anymore. As we move through the timeline of history, it feels like the nerd becomes uh, particularly British and American with the with the rise of a, a certain form of uh, a certain form of Christianity. Can you tell me about that? Yeah. Uh, 
Thomas Hughes and Charles Kingsley were these two English guys, one of whom wrote Tom Brown's School Days, which was um, kind of the 19th century version of Harry Potter. It was this hugely successful novel about boarding school and this guy Tom Brown at boarding school who becomes kind of the champion uh, rugby player and defends the little guys from the bullies and a big part of Tom Brown's school days uh, was that you need guys like Tom Brown these good rugby players to form an empire and the British Empire is in its ascendancy these are the building blocks of our empire and so they invented a doctrine called muscular Christianity where their idea was the way to be Christian isn't to be nice and retiring and, and, and wimpy like we might think of, you know, a minister in a church being kind of wimpy. It's to be a man of character, an athletic man of character who can put down an insurrection in Burma, for example. Um, and that's how you spread Christianity. And so they, um, they wrote about this a lot and it became a hit um, with the Protestant establishment in the United States. Teddy Roosevelt loved it. The Groton School was founded by this guy named Endicott Peabody, uh, who was extremely influenced by this doctrine. And other American boarding schools kind of based themselves on Groton. And um, and so it became uh, exactly the classiest kind of dude you could be, basically, in the late 19th century, was the athletic man of character. It was a an Anglophilic uh, philosophy, and it was a very, you know, pro-physicality one. And it really conveniently gave the Protestant establishment a way to define itself against these immigrants who were starting to get into Harvard. And um, these immigrants got into Harvard because they studied really hard. Uh, they were uh, in large part Jewish immigrants um, from, say, the Lower East Side who didn't have any outdoorsy activities on their schedule but just did really well on tests and did really well in school. And you couldn't really throw them out. And so, um, and so that's how we kind of got uh, a way of, of defining yourself against um, somebody who's too indoorsy, too intellectual, uh, doesn't have enough character. That, that sort of a, that idea of the ultimate, uh, the ultimate American persists. I mean, you can think of, you know, John F. Kennedy in a V-neck sweater, you know, on board a yacht pulling at the till or playing football on a beach or something like that in Hyannisport. Yeah. Is that what it is? Hyannisport? Is that where yeah. the Kennedys will go? Yeah, it is. I'm from Massachusetts. <laughs> okay, good. I don't want to get, I don't want to get this wrong and have, you know, a Kennedy call me up. No, no. Upset. I mean, I mean, half of my family were, um, Irish Americans who who absolutely idolized those waspy ways of being and and it was, the Kennedys are very much the same kind of deal. There's a turn of phrase that you write about in the book that is used to describe uh, the immigrant population uh, and uh, to set them apart from these kind of waspy ruling class types called the greasy grind. Uh, tell me about tell me about where you found that phrase. Well, the greasy grind was a phrase that a guy named Jerome Carabell, a professor at Berkeley, talked about uh, and uncovered in his research into admissions in uh, to Harvard, Yale, and Princeton uh, in a book called The Chosen. Uh, and what he found was that during the late 19th century, when muscular Christianity was a big thing, the number of valedictorians who were let into the prestigious senior societies at those three elite colleges rapidly declined. Um, and everyone talked about it, that we're no longer about making young men into these, um, you know, wimpy intellectuals. Um, and, uh, 
greasy grind was the term they used to describe them. And it was a term they used to create a social distinction between the guys who studied really hard and the guys who got gentlemen C's. I thought it was very interesting that some of the first examples of the uh, of nerdiness that we would understand as being like contemporary nerdiness showed up in uh, humor magazines, in uh, uh, technical and uh, science-oriented uh, universities. Tell me about uh, tell me about how nerdiness started to be defined in the in the forties and fifties and sixties. Sure. Well, in nineteen fifty, we got the first known usage in print of the term nerd in a book by Dr. Seuss called If I Ran the Zoo. And the nerd in that book, though, is just a creature. It just looks like an angry little alien. And it's only a year later, in 1951, that we can find Newsweek saying nerd is a Detroit regional slang term for a drip or a square, quote-unquote. And then I found someone who told me that she wrote an editorial in her high school newspaper in 1959 called Leave the Nerds Alone. And it was, you know, roughly the same concept that we think of now. But the image, the visual image of that guy with um, the tape on his glasses and the pocket protector and the high pants, that first turns up in engineering school humor magazines in the early to mid-60s. And um, the RPI Bachelor, uh, RPI stands for Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, And um, the RPI Bachelor was their humor magazine. And uh, during those years, for example, in 1965, they had a parody of The Man from Uncle called The Man from Nerd. Uh, And he had a a pocket protector with a superhero emblem on it and those big glasses and those high pants. And that was the earliest image I found. Um, of the nerd that that we know from Revenge of the Nerds and all that other stuff. It seems like the 70s were the time when the nerd went from being uh, went from being you know just one of many kind of cultural archetypes out there into being a big thing mm-hmm. uh, with a capital B and a capital T. Tell tell me about how that happened. Well, Saturday Night Live was really important. You know, people had thrown around the word nerd on television, like Fonzie would would use it in Happy Days. But um, what happened was Elvis Costello, uh, the performer who looks nerdy, had this kind of nerdy outfit, went on Saturday Night Live, and one of the writers, Ann Beats, saw him rehearsing and got this idea for a sketch about nerd rock, was what she said. And, and she created this imaginary duo of, of nerd rockers. And the nerd rock sketch never aired, but... The nerd sketches did, and it was uh, Bill Murray and Gilda Radner, who were in real life kind of seeing each other, um, became um, Todd Dulamuka and Lisa Lupner, uh, this this nerd couple. And they had a very distinctive kind of goat-like laugh, and they wore their pants really high, and, and they had glasses, and, and all the others. They were more or less the same as the Revenge of the Nerds guys. And um, that was when the image really broke wide open, when, when mainstream America got, got used to it. And uh, in fact, one of the dictionaries added nerd shortly after those sketches came on. How do you think the coalescence of that idea in popular culture affect pe- affected people who were, uh, who were nerds at the time? You know, I think... From the very beginning, those portraits tended to be somewhat affectionate because the people who were coming up with them 
were nerds themselves. You know, they were largely nerd-invented portraits from the RPI Bachelor, who were engineering guys. And um, in the case of Ann Beats and Rosie Schuster, the two Saturday Night Live writers, both um, women who had been nerdy girls in, in high school. And so, you know, when I talked to nerds from that time, like I, I talked to Paul Feig, the guy who created the show Freaks and Geeks, and he remembered, you know, having watching that Saturday Night Live stuff, you know, affectionately, and also having the National Lampoon's poster of a nerd on his wall. You know, those, those early, uh, I guess you can call them the stereotypes, and, and while they might seem extremely negative, were uh, embraced by the population that they were supposed to represent. It's the sound of young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Ben Nugent. His book is American Nerd, The Story of My People. It traces the history of the nerd in the United States from the 19th century to Nugent's own childhood in the 1970s. Production of The Sound of Young America is underwritten in part by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered. Online at ask.metafilter.com. Special thanks to Chris, the intern, and all of the volunteers who came out to our first ever Pledge Drive Volunteer Day. We have packaged up 12 quajillion thank you gifts and are dropping them in the mail. So if you're one of the many folks who pledged to support the Sound of Young America in our recent Pledge Drive, keep an eye on your mailbox. Something may well be coming to you soon. If you're not one of the folks who's pledged, it's never too late. Just visit MaximumFun.org and click on Donate. Welcome back to The Sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with Benjamin Nugent. His new book is called American Nerd, The Story of My People. It's a combination of personal memoir and history of the idea of nerdiness. Ben, tell me about why you decided to make this book um, not just a sociological one, but also a personal one. I decided that the traditional function of the novel in our culture was to show how the personal linked up with and connect with and was influenced by and influenced the political and the historical. Uh, and I was interested in doing that with a work of nonfiction. And, you know, I originally conceived the book as just a history. And then I found it worked better and made more sense if you integrated um, memoir and reporting. And so it wasn't just my life that I incorporated. I also went out there and interviewed a lot of nerds and, and hung out with a lot of nerds and tried to um, show how the cultural history of the nerd prototype, if you will, influenced how they conceived of themselves and, and how they corresponded to things in that prototype and how they didn't. Among the nerds that you went out and talked to were your own peers from school, um, literally the folks that you played Dungeons and Dragons with. Mm -hmm. um, how many of those folks did you have still have a connection to, uh, you know, whatever it is, 15, 20 years later? None of them. I had to, uh, you know, search for them. Uh, because when I was in high school, I, I very consciously um, separated myself from them and, and wouldn't hang out with anybody who I knew from my nerdy junior high days. And, um, yeah, one, one of the interesting things about it was um, how much more open they were with me than most journalistic subjects will be with you. Because even though we hadn't talked for 15 years, if, if people know you when you're 12 or, or 13 they feel comfortable with you in, in a weird sort of way. It's like those are 
I, I guess I'm like reaffirming some kind of like stand by me cliche here, but I think in some ways, like the most viscerally, um, the people you're most viscerally comfortable around are probably the people who are your friends when you were like 12. And, um, it, it was really interesting to see that was still the case. And it was also interesting to see that nerdiness was still a big part of, of their lives. I mean, I guess it's, it's still a big part of mine cause I wrote a book about it, <laughs> um, but, but, um, you know, they, you know, would still do things like, like play worlds of Warcraft and, and D and D and stuff like that. And, in the case of one of them, had become an executive at a video game company, and it was so it was his career. And um, in both of their cases, it turned out that that nerdy stuff, getting together with groups of other nerdy boys, was a way out of somewhat, if not abusive, extremely chaotic uh, family lives. And so one of the things I, I, I liked about talking to them was I realized how tough they had been as, as kids. And everyone probably thought they were huge wimps because they didn't work out and they dressed like nerds and they did nerdy stuff, but they were really tough kids in a way. They withstood a lot of um, weird punishments um, from their families and, and in addition to how they were treated by their peers and, and came out of it okay. One of the friends that you uh, that you went back and talked to was a guy who is uh, mixed race, who is half, half white and half African American, who had, a, I think, a very unique experience of nerdiness uh, because of that fact, um, and, and you, I thought you wrote about it very eloquently. Tell me about how how you think his uh, his race played into his nerdiness and how they interrelated. Well, I think um, I mean it changed his life in a lot of ways. I mean, for one thing, you know, I mean as it later turned out, he he wasn't half African American. He was he was half Puerto Rican, half white, but he didn't know it at the time. He thought. Um, that the guy who said he was his father was his biological father, and so he thought he was half African American. And um, uh, you know, all the I remember this certain clique of, of black kids at our school would walk behind him in the hallways and, and call him "wanna be white guy" and make fun of him. And you know, it was definitely considered a more noticeable fraught thing that he was being a nerd than any of us were being a nerd. And um, I think it, among other things. Um, kind of forced him into a kind of self-actualization. You know what I mean? It's like if, you know, you really don't correspond to any pop culture image that's out there at all. You know, the black nerds on TV were these absurd caricatures that were supposed to be extra ridiculous because they were both nerdy and black, like Urkel, um, that, you know, you just wind up, you know, walking to the beat of your own drum. And, um... I, so I, I think he wound up being kind of unusually wise and, and mature, certainly more than the rest of us. You write about research that's in, in the state of California that suggested that, um, in, in part, nerdiness was a sort of enactment of hyper-whiteness. Um, tell, me, uh, tell, me a little bit about, um, tell me a little bit about that, about that research. Well, there was a very interesting uh, set of articles written by a linguist at uh, UC Santa Barbara named Mary Buckholtz, um, where she went to a California high school. And what she found was that the popular white kids appropriated slang terms that were associated with the black kids, that they said things like trippin', for example. Um, and that the only white kids who did not do this, who did not use any um, hip-hop slang, black slang, whatever you want to call it, 
um, were the kids who called themselves nerds. And they were kind of marginalized, and they sort of um, consciously spoke in this sort of marginalized way. And so she called that uh, way of speaking hyper-whiteness, because it was almost like they were being so white that they weren't white anymore. That the white kids who were hegemonic or the most accepted or the most popular were kids who incorporated a little bit of something that was considered a little black. Um, and that was almost like part of what it meant to be white. Had you thought, uh, previous to doing all of this research much, about the class and race issues that uh, nerdy, with which nerdiness is so fraught? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I wrote a whole chapter on how notions of, of ethnic groups and notions of what a nerd is um, have had common ancestors. Um, you know, for example, if you look at the 18th century caricatures from, from Germany and England of Jews, they look not unlike um, Lewis and Gilbert from Revenge of the Nerds. You know, they have these sort of flailing skinny limbs and spectacles falling off, and they're doing things like falling off of bicycles or, or being wimpy in other ways. And the idea was that they were supposed to be brainy and, and calculating and smart, but utterly incapable of um, fighting or doing anything physical or being physically graceful or strong. And when you look at the things people wrote about Jews at, at that point, it's it's also similar. It's, you know, that they're calculating and and, sh and thrifty and, and cunning and they're good at adding and you know, they're, um, they're not able to brawl in the streets or, or do anything with their bodies. And so... Um, you know, and they certainly were considered kind of invalid as romantic prospects. And so um, there was a lot, you could argue that the function the nerd um, fills in our uh, cultural landscape now is not unlike the function the Jew um, filled in the cultural landscape of England and Germany in, in, say, the 18th and 19th centuries. You know, the language issue um, made me think about, uh, you know, things that things that I had studied in college about hip hop culture, actually, um, and the ways that uh, the ways that language and identity were so closely tied together and uh, the ways that creating one's own language, even if it's a variation on um, even if it's a variation on standard English. Uh, is a way of sort of asserting identity. And it, that made me think of uh, the way that the world of nerdiness and geekiness has in the past, you know, 15 years or so uh, asserted itself, uh, asserted its identity. Um, and, you know, you write in the book about the simple fact that, you know, you can go buy a T-shirt that says, I heart geeks or something like that. Uh, quite easily in 2008, which is something that, you know, I mean, I'm only 27 years old, but when I was 13, I would think that would be completely absurd. Um, tell me about how uh, how this cultural group's self-identity has transformed itself over the period from, you know, the 70s when the archetype first was established to, to today. Well, the huge change has been the Internet that... Um you know, it used to be there were actual clubhouses, basically, where nerds got together. There's still one here in the L.A. area called the Los Angeles Science Fantasy Society. But it's a rapidly aging population because the people who would be joining that clubhouse now are all finding each other online. Um, 
you know, when I went back and talked to one of my friends from high school, he said, you know, one of the reasons I play Worlds of Warcraft with the headsets and all that stuff, because that's where my friends are, you know? And so I think the big, the big difference is that, um, that social cohesion happens for nerds largely on the internet now and where it used to happen on over ham radio and, and over the letters section and in, in science fiction magazines and, um, and in physical get-togethers, although of course there's still things like Comic Con, which are huge nerd get-togethers. Um, and so, whether the changing pop culture representations of nerds have changed how nerds perceive themselves is something that's kind of hard to to figure out or, or, or answer yes or no to. But um, whether the ways nerds find each other and how they interact has changed, absolutely. That's been the huge change in nerd culture. What was um... What was the hardest thing for you to write about yourself in the book? What was the what was the most difficult thing to revisit? It's a good question. I think I think the most difficult thing to revisit was probably my realization that um I so wanted to not be a nerd when I was a kid that I was willing to turn my back on the most loyal friends I had. And I think there's, um, you know, in all the talk of, of nerd pride and that kind of thing we have now and like nerds are cool and whatever. I think it's so interesting that nobody talks about nerds being self-loathing because surely they are. Um, surely I wasn't the only kid who hated being a nerd, even though I knew I was. Um, and so, um, yeah, I think it I think it was interesting to to go into that and then in the process of doing that uh having to actually question whether I ever actually successfully <laughs> um stopped being a nerd. You know, I think I had kind of assumed that the veneer I created in in high school was um something people believed in. And then I wrote this book and started talking to people about what I had done and assumed they'd all be like, "Oh, yeah, you're not a nerd. That's weird." And instead, people were like, oh, yeah, is that how you're proud of being a nerd? Cool. <laughs> and um, or like, you know, what's it like being a nerd or, you know, stuff like that. Um, and, uh, you know, I went on last call with Carson Daly the other night and uh, he was like, are you a nerd at the end? And I was like, oh, well, you know, you're a cool guy. You can tell me whether I'm a nerd or not. And I could see him thinking <laughs> really hard about how to be nice in this situation. He was just like, oh, well, you know, it seems kind of judgmental to, to, to say, you know. And so, um, you know, clearly people think of me as a nerd. And, and that was something that was, I, in, in some part of me, difficult to accept, too. Is there any more definitional person to think that you're a nerd than Carson Daly? No, that was why it was so devastating. <laughs> Well, uh, Ben, I sure appreciate you coming, taking the time to be on The Sound of Young America. Thank you so much. Hey, thanks for having me. Ben Nugent is the author of the book American Nerd, The Story of My People. Another Sound of Young America program comes to an end. I've been your host, Jesse Thorne, America's radio sweetheart. The show produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our theme music written and performed by Dan Grayson with help from myself. Interstitial music provided by Dan Wally. Our intern is Chris Bowman. You can find us on the worldwide interwebs at MaximumFun.org. At MaximumFun.org, you will find not only our regularly updated blog, but also our other programs like Jordan Jesse Go, which surprisingly many of you have never even tried listening to. You should probably try listening to it. I bet you would really like it. Anyway, we'll see you later this week on The Sound of Young America. Music